0: In this episode, Owen Anderson and I talk about apologetics. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome Owen Anderson. Uh, We've already been talking, but I always like to welcome you anyways after we hit record because it just seems like the right thing to do. (laughs) Now, as we get going, I just love for you to maybe just briefly introduce yourself so that uh, someone who's tuning in can kind of know who Owen is.
1: Yeah, I'm a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Arizona State University and also a faculty associate at Phoenix Seminary. And I've written books about God's existence, about the good, about natural law. And it sounds like those are going to be the kind of things we talk about today. So I'm, I'm excited to be here with you.
0: Yeah, well, I love to be able to uh, hear people who have really thought about topics for a while, I just kind of hear the reflections and learn from them. I don't know if I've ever said this on a podcast, but I and I told you this already, but I, often, I like to think of myself as Bozo and the person I'm talking to, Anselm. Right. And uh, it's kind of a funny thing to say, but also, I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, I, I love to be able to kind of think through what good questions might be. Um, as we get going, there, there is something. Well, and essentially, what's kind
1: of interesting is here, you're, you're having on a professor from a, a secular university. We're hmm. actually the largest uh, state university in the country hmm. uh, to talk about our knowledge of God. Oh. So that's kind of somewhat ironic. It seems like.
0: Well, we can have that. If, if it's a secular school, it can only be secular. There can be no kind of porous existence uh, where there's any kind of religious talk, I'm sure.
1: Yep. But well, maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah. That's what my, my most recent book with Cambridge was about the uh, first amendment and religious liberty. So that, that's something that's on my mind. Um.
0: Okay. Well, okay. Let's start there then. You just said you just, you're publishing a book. With, so what is that book? You just mentioned with this book with Cambridge. That's
1: the, the Cambridge companion to the first amendment. So it's a collection of, uh, essays, chapters, by leading scholars in philosophy, uh, religious studies, law, history, uh, looking at different issues coming up with the First Amendment and specifically religious liberty.
0: So one of the things that I find interesting, is in the First Amendment, if I understand this correctly, it gives you the freedom to worship. But in the language of the First Amendment, you do not necessarily have the freedom to propagate your religion. I think it's like a controversial issue, right?
1: Well, yeah, not? there could be some limits put, just like there's limits put on a screaming fire in a in a crowded movie theater. Free speech, also part of the First Amendment, doesn't just give you the freedom to say anything anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you, you have the you have the freedom not to be told uh, where to worship, so you can either worship or not, and, and and the freedom to believe what you want about these kinds of religious questions. So earlier today, I was talking about. Uh, John Bunyan, who spent 12 years in prison for disagreeing that you have to be have Anglican ordination to be a minister. Hmm. So they arrested him and put him in prison for 12 years. And he, he used his time well and wrote one of the best-known English novels, Pilgrim's Progress. Right. But because of events like that, we have the First Amendment. So you, you'd be surprised if you heard someone say, yeah, I just got out of prison. And you say, well, for what? Well, I was I had church in my house. Mm-hmm. Hey, what? Why did you go from prison for that?
0: You know what? So I just learned this. Uh, it might have been, I think it was yesterday, that apparently John Owen was instrumental in getting John Bunyan out of prison.
1: Yeah, I think John Owen said something along the lines of Pilgrim's Progress puts into story form all of my theology. Really? Oh, I didn't yeah. know
0: that. So I, I, I'm learning much more about this John Owen, uh, which is just interesting. And uh, we're going to talk maybe about some of the stuff, but uh, apparently John Owen was very influential to John Locke, and John Locke was one of his students. Yeah, there's some relationship
1: um, there, too. It's interesting. uh, That's a good First Amendment question, just in terms of the uh, prelude, the precursor to the First Amendment, right? What what did it come out of? Well, it came out of some of these arguments in England about ordination, about where to have church, how to have church. Right. You have to use the book, common prayer. Huh.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Apparently, John Owen was um, very, like, instrumental in kind of pushing for religious toleration, liberty. And John Locke seems to be influenced, at least yeah. in part, by John Owen's view on that.
1: Yeah, John Locke's parents were involved in the English Civil War, so mm-hmm. he comes out of that, and is, is he's writing more about he's writing about toleration. Okay. And I think as a as a Congregationalist, John Owen would have been in favor of that, and uh, yeah. not having a, a state church that imposes there'd be two p- problems. One would be you ha- every every minister has to be ordained Anglican. So then what about Presbyterians or Congregationalists? But then the second one is, uh, if you are an uncle, then you have to use the Book of Common Prayer. Because someone might say, look, I do want to be in the Church of England. I just don't want to have to use the Book of Common Prayer all the time. So those two different issues all, all related to each other. But mentioning John Locke's a good a good stepping stone to the next topic, which is God's existence. Right. Because he actually has some some useful things to say about that. And that's one of the things that we're, we're thinking about discussing. Because let me let me try to connect it to the first minute. Yeah. freedom. Uh, religious liberty should, it seems like it should be more than the freedom to believe whatever fantasy you want. Mm. Right. Like, like you have the fantasy section and you either have, you have Tolkien or you have Narnia or whatever other ones yeah, Dune is coming out. Marvel's out. And, and the first amendment just protects you. that You can buy whichever book you want. And the Bible's in there. Some people like the Bible. That's their favorite fantasy book. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think okay, it was one of my favorite enough. Homer Simpson, one of my favorite Homer Simpson quotes. He said, yeah, God is one of my favorite fictional characters. <laughs> so we would think, well, say, wait, wait, wait. God, the Bible shouldn't be in the fantasy section. That's true. So when we're defending religious liberty, we're defending things that we think are true. We think God is real. Mm. So that brings us to the topic. Well, well, how can we know that? How can we have a knowledge of God? Well,
0: that's a, let's jump into that then. because it, So this is something that's really interesting to me. Now, I'm not sharp on all the kind of Enlightenment history. And that's maybe where you can kind of help me think through this. But there did seem to be an instrumental, uh, instrumental, uh, a large change, anyways, in maybe the 17th, 18th centuries, and how people think about certainty. I think was David Hume, who who basically proposes that the idea of causation is sort of not really real. You just have two things that are coincidentally always together, and that's what cause and effect appears to look like. And so then you move away from
1: time. Pardon me. Yeah, kind of a constant conjunction in time. One after the other, and we keep yeah. seeing that. And so then we say the first one caused the second one.
0: Yeah. So it, it, but it's an odd thing because it kind of removes purpose and intrinsic cause, at least in, in uh, things in the world. And so it, we, we sort of change and then we begin to move into this idea of probability, plausibility. So I don't know if, if, if it's David Hume you want to talk about or in general, we this can. transition.
1: Yeah, let's talk about, let's talk in general about, let's, let's kind of keep the top of that. our knowledge of God. David Hume is really good because he is like uh, an acid wash that removes any barnacles that don't carry their own weight. Okay. And so his skepticism is nothing to be afraid of. It's something that is helpful because it shows where people have been making unsound arguments and we need to do better. So he, he's, he's in a line with John Locke because they're both British empiricists. But what Hume does is he takes empiricism to its logical conclusion. If you're going to be an empiricist, you're going to end up where Hume ended up, and so that's why he says what he does about causation. Um, you don't have to accept his view of causation, just like you don't have to accept empiricism. But once you say all knowledge is from sense data, then you don't have anything called a cause because you don't. There's, when you look in the world, you don't see the one billiard ball, another billiard ball, and a third thing called a cause. You just see two billiard balls, and so once you go with empiricism, you lost that ability to talk about causation as this thing, as you say that has purpose. And then that underlies, undergirds, is the foundation for so many of the theistic arguments. And so it's why one of the reasons you'll see in the modern world, arguments from revivalism and personal experience become very important for people because they're Mm. empiricists. And so they'll say, well, how do I know God? Because he spoke to me. And especially here in America, we had all kinds of religious movements starting up in the 19th century with people who thought they had new revelations from God, right? So what what Hume's doing is showing how the arguments we've been using for God's existence aren't sound. And I, I take that to be helpful insofar as he's right. I take that to be helpful because what happens to all of the claims about Christ if one of two things is the case? Either God isn't real or we can't know God. Well, that affects all the rest of the claims you're going to make about Christ as well. Hmm.
0: You made it really, you just, I want to kind of pause on this for a second because I've never thought about this before. If, if there is no sort of behind like metaphysical cause that exists, mm-hmm. then what's left is empiricism that, that what you can see with your senses and discern Yeah. and that then you noted that kind of led to this idea of experiential verification. Yeah. Uh, I've never made that connection before. And it strikes me is that we're, we're really still in that boat oh, yeah. when most now I'm not saying like maybe scholars, but I'm just saying the average person.
1: Well, I think scholarship is even.
0: Maybe scholarship too. Yeah, in the, the average sense person... that
1: personal identity is determined by your inner experiences, and that shapes reality. Mm. So from the yeah from the top to the bottom, that's very common in culture to think mm. that way, right? So my personal experiences—that's what's most real to me.
0: Now I I don't want to kind of uh, speak against my own tribe, but I, I even think sometimes even as I'm a Baptist. And sometimes even in our, in our baptism, we're so subjective in yeah. what that means. Now, I think that you should confess your faith. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is prior Christians almost as a whole emphasize the objective confession, the truth of God's promise, mm-hmm. that which baptism represents, that which baptism bestows. And even kind of in our liturgical practice of, of singing and worship of baptism, even of the Eucharistic gift, it's, it has become so subjective. Yeah. I don't know why these are all just kind of pouring into my head as you're, as you're able talking.
1: to test them against the word of God. Cause that's another thread that you and I'll probably get into, which is old Princeton. Mm. And, and they had a way of bridging that. They would talk about vital piety. Mm. So you could have a kind of knowledge, which I would call maybe more like awareness. Like the atheist has a knowledge of God in the sense that he's aware of what Christians teach about God but it's not vital. It doesn't change his life because he doesn't believe it's true. Right. And so, so this is part of the question of someone could, someone could think something's true, but it's false. So whatever feelings they get from it don't, don't matter. They're, they're proceeding from falsehood or someone could think something's true. and doesn't seem to change their life. So that's that question of, yeah, how, how do you achieve vital piety? So maybe we can put that as one of the questions yeah. we're coming to. Cause I think before that is this question about is God real or not? I mean, all the things you just mentioned from From baptism to uh being called as a minister, what if God is not real no that's like you you're called to be a, a hobbit I mean but it's fantasy right? you check it at the door, you know it's fantasy you don't let it come out into the real world so, so it's then Christianity mo- doing more than just fantasy life hmm.
0: so then kind of moving on from human so that, that's maybe just a, a little bit of a one aspect of human in a nutshell yeah we'll call it human human skepticism, human skepticism but you also. I think Kant or Manuel Kant plays an important role or do you call him Kant? What do you say?
1: Kant or Kant? Kant is fine, yeah. Kant. You can't say Kant. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Whichever way. I've heard it both ways. Oh, okay. Very um, good. So how, do, how does yeah, he the play, reason uh, why they play a role in, in the history of philosophy of the last few centuries is that uh, Kant was a, uh, Kant was a uh, kind of a rationalist following a guy named Christian Wolff, who would argue that you can use reason to deduce all the truths of scripture. Hmm. So sort of, The Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture are just the same content, and you just really just need reason. And when Kant read Hume, Hume's skepticism showed how these arguments are all unsound. And so he has a a famous phrase where he says, Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers. Mm. And so that's what, in his mind, he was, the work after that is a response to Hume's skepticism. But in one way, it's simply an accepting of Hume's skepticism. Because what he does is he, he bifurcates the world into two things. There's the noumenal world, which is being in itself, and the phenomenal world, which is our experiences. And we can never experience the be, being in itself. So we can't really say anything about it. We can only speak about the, the phenomenal world. So in that sense, he's accepting Hume's skepticism and saying, yeah, we don't know anything about being in itself because we only know from experience. But then he, he gives what's come down to us as transcendental arguments and you might know some people who like these, which says you have to posit certain things about the noumenal realm, though, to make sense of the phenomenal realm. So you have to posit God and immortality and causation. So you, ha- you don't have a direct proof, you have a transcendental proof for those things.
0: Yeah, it's, so it's necessary that God and causation and so on exist so that the noumenal or the phenomenological world around yeah. us makes sense.
1: If you're going to make sense of it this way and if you have morality this way. Now, Nietzsche's response... Right. Let's say, let's say Hume, Kant, Nietzsche, Foucault, uh, as the uh, mm-hmm. line of skepticism. Uh, Nietzsche's response is, you need God for your morality, but your morality is a slave morality. And, and, and the, the, the morality of the, uh, the Superman doesn't need God. And it doesn't, it's not the same as this morality. So Kant's argument, Nietzsche says, is just a circular argument. You have to have God for this morality. So, yeah, we don't need that morality. And Mm -hmm. then Foucault puts that into practice. He's called the greatest disciple of Nietzsche by saying, yeah, look at different practices, whether it was how we treat crime or madness or sexuality. All of these are just culturally uh, based. None of them have reality in some moral code that exists objectively. So so Foucault would
0: essentially reject all forms of
1: natural law. Oh, yeah, for sure. He's a, he's just like Hume took empiricism to, to its logical outcome. That's what Foucault is doing. He's a nominalist. There are only particulars. Mm-hmm. There are no universals, so you can't really speak of even universal law. And that's what, that's what empiricism requires. As soon as you go with empiricism, you're going to end up as a nominalist. Yeah, I remember reading Nietzschean
0: College, and I'm not sure if this is where, if I remember, I read this book, Zarathustra. There, there I don't know if I finished mm-hmm. it. I don't yeah. think so. It's either from the book or I just saw on the internet. But basically, you have him coming down the hill and declaring that God is dead and we killed him. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you might, you probably know better than me, obviously. What he's really saying is we don't really have, like, we have moral code anymore. We don't have this consciousness of God. It's not that God yeah. literally died. Yeah. There's not some fellow like Zeus. Yeah. There's not some died. sort of myth there. It's just that we don't, yeah. it doesn't matter anymore for morality. Yeah. And I guess. And that would, you can
1: see uh, from that stream where the existentialists come from. Because what they would say is they would accept that and say that the, the truest morality, real morality, is and meaning is that what you make yourself mm-hmm. and so, so for example if you told me i only don't steal because i know a policeman's watching me and you say Yeah, i never have stolen because there's always a policeman watching me well that doesn't seem very moral right and so they say the same thing yeah these christians or believers go around and they they don't do bad things because god's always watching them but mm-hmm. i don't do bad things because i am making my own meaning i don't even think there is anyone watching me
0: Right, so that's a kind of courageous meaning making in the, in yeah. the midst of because I mean, nihilism uh, is often viewed pure very negatively. Romantic existence. Romantic existence, because yeah, nihilism, uh, I think, in culture is viewed so negatively as self destruction, but it's not really true. Nihilism is the the courageous, uh, courageous making your own meaning in a life without meaning. Yeah, it, it depends. Is which one, to be yeah, good. So it
1: depends who you're looking at. Different different authors would okay. be more romantic. Camus is a little uh, more romantic than Sartre, and I <clears> think Hemingway, <throat> as a as a novelist, has this this frame this kind of flavor as well of the romantic figure you know making his own meaning in the face of the, the uh-huh. crises of, mo- of modern world so
0: uh, what you've described and you use the word nominalism is, is is a movement maybe from maybe a, a realist view of, of of the cosmos to a sort of a nominalistic view of the cosmos so maybe could you just define nominalism because you mentioned yeah. that um Michel Foucault was a was a nominalist i don't know if he mm-hmm. calls himself that but that would be the effect of what he does so what is nominalism? Yeah.
1: It means only particular things exist. Mm-hmm. So it's often said, doesn't ha- these are not the only two options, but it's set in, in contrast to Platonism. Plato would say there are the particular things, but there are also these ideas of those things. And so there's all these, we might look around, we see lots of triangles. But then there's something called ness, which is the pure triangle. And these other things are triangles insofar as they're like the idea of the triangle. So you have to have that 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 eternal idea. And, and so the nominalist empiricist says, no, there's no such thing as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all 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 the things we see are things around us changing. And and so even back before Plato, you have Her- Heraclitus who says all is change. So it's it's not as if it's new to the modern world. But if all is change, and there aren't eternal ideas. Plato's wrong. So I, I, well as I was say, I think then to make it to get to kind of where
0: we're getting, to make it really practical, you could just say, look. This is why like maybe a proof for God might be you see the beauty in creation and you think that's an effect of the cause. Who's God? Is that the idea behind the particulars? Right. But if there's only particulars, a beautiful tree or sunset doesn't tell you anything
1: beyond what it is. Exactly. So it doesn't tell you anything. And let me say also it's underdetermined, which means you might look at a beautiful sunset and you conclude God. A Hindu looks at a beautiful sunset and concludes Krishna. <clears throat> Muslim looks at the beautiful sunset saying it concludes Allah. So it's underdetermined for, so for the Christian view of God, anyway, it doesn't get mm-hmm. you there. It's way too far. And then what Hume adds in his, his, his most brilliant book. You should, everyone should read this It's not too long is dialogues concerning natural religion. And that's a book where he has these three fictional characters talking about whether or not we can know God and different arguments. And when, when you come to the argument, say from beauty, Hume reminds us of the reality of uh, evil and suffering also. So mm-hmm. when you look out at the sunset, you're very selective. You're just picking the colors of the sunset. In between you and the sunset is this great plane of Earth with, with thousands, presumably, of creatures suffering and dying, which you're not paying any attention to. So you're saying, look at this great sunset. That proves the wonderful architect made the world. But if you were to pay attention to all the details, they, they outweigh the sunset. And you say, what happened? How could someone make a world like this?
0: And what's interesting about that is the way that you framed it anyways, is sort of an empiricist argument. You're mm-hmm. counting up the evidence in what you see yeah, around you. And the conclusion is there's, there may be more evil than beauty. And therefore it doesn't really tell you anything about some sort
1: of primal beauty. Yeah, that's so, the main character in that dialogue is named Philo. And he takes the mystical skeptic view. So he's a skeptic. He shows how none of these arguments, the classical arguments work. But at the end, he introduces a kind of mysticism. We need some belief in God to, to make sense of our world, but it's going to come through a mystical experience, not through rational arguments mm. so he so people debate about that. did Hume add that in because he didn't want to be uh, censored? Is that really what he thought? because if you just end the book with a critique of God, no one will be allowed to read it, so you have to somehow bring God back in. so people debate about that issue but but that's very common people uh, my view is what it doesn't matter why he included it that's a very common view that. Uh, we can't really have any arguments. We just have to come down to personal experiences.
0: Wow. So, uh, okay, I think that's helpful. We've, we've situated a, a very slim slice of a large intellectual movement over hundreds of years. Yeah. We're doing
1: a little We're bit of really, history and philosophy. Yeah, history philosophy in about but 10 minutes. The goal minutes. is because of how, I think the background goal is how the modern world has challenged believing in God. Okay. So, for so, example, you probably read Charles Taylor, right? Secular Age. Yeah. And that's his question. How do we go from the Reformation, where everyone believes in God, to the present? So we've kind of filled in some of that history here. Challenges. Well, one answer is it doesn't seem to happen. There's no rational arguments for belief in God.
0: Yeah. If someone it's tells you to believe
1: in God, so they come up to you and they say, I believe in Gandalf. And you say, yeah, he's a neat fictional character. No, I believe he's real. I'm going to go have lunch with him. You say, ha, ha. It hmm. wrong, right? So, so God is now in that same category.
0: That's in, is, is, is a, a being among beans. Yeah. Well, yeah, Charles Taylor- well, Not just really that, helped. but
1: he's- also fictional, a fictional means, fictional. Fictional okay. Right?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Charles Taylor's interest. I need, I still need to finish the uh, the Secular Age. I think I've had it for for too long without finishing. But it is a, a insightful book. At least some of the language and, and ideas there.
1: Well, Yeah, but, I just referenced it for that one. Uh, the the problem he says he's studying, right. and, and many people study that problem. It strikes a lot of us, and and the the uh, the new atheists like Richard Dawkins will say, well, the answer is we're getting smarter. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of superstitions we don't believe in anymore. It's really good. But obviously for Christians, we would see this as a declension, a decline. And Mm -hmm. we say, well, wait, uh, what's happened? Why why don't people believe in God anymore?
0: So how do we make uh, theism plausible again? Make theism plausible again.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So let's think about that. A couple things. Because we we talked earlier about the idea of certainty. Yeah. And now plausibility. So let me raise a question about those two, because I think those are sort of subjective terms. Okay. Certainty, we got to define it. Because certainty tends to mean something like this. I'm strongly convicted that. So when someone says I'm certain of, they mean I'm strongly convinced. It'll take a lot to change my mind. And that's just right. a claim about me. That's not a claim about reality. Whereas what I want to talk about is the the reality of the case. Like what, what can we know about God and plausible is like that too, right? How do we make God more plausible? We'll make an Ariana Grande video about it. You know, and people, people love they, she, she has a video called woman is God, I think. And it made mother goddess worship. I think it's God as a woman. I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Let's get our pop culture right here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I got to get that right as a, uh, as a sun devil. That's right. So yeah. So plausible could just mean that, right? That's a Madison Avenue question. Like how do I sell more cases of God? Uh, How do I sell more cases of beer? Mm -hmm. Well, here's what Madison Avenue does. So I think you and I don't mean that, but that could easily slip into that. Mm -hmm, You could could mm -hmm. sort of do apologetics like that. Uh, How do we make this really popular? So I think, well, we're what we're wondering is we really want to know if God is real or not. And, and mm-hmm. how we approach that's really going to be a, a reflection of our own approach to that in any of the other questions of life, right? H- how do we answer that question? First, I would say this what, what are we talking about when, we're, when we ask if God is real? What do you think for for you? Let's do a little dialogue. Uh what would you say? I mean, what when you're saying is God exist? What are we talking about?
0: Uh I think. My, my, my gut answer, and I think what most people say, is is the being
1: that made everything. Yeah, so right from thinking about it. I think you're right. That's a good way to put it, because right there, you get to the essential feature of God. God made everything and wasn't made. So God is eternal. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, one of the first things that Paul mentions in Romans 1. The eternal power of God mm-hmm. is clearly seen from the things that are made. And, and for the simple reason what you just said, right? They're made and God isn't created. But, think, but a lot of times when people approach a the question, they're not approaching it like that. The first uh, uh, human to orbit the Earth, he was a cosmonaut. And he came back and he said, we now know there is no God. <laughs> and I guess he is an empiricist, right? He went up and he looked around in the clouds and no one's up on the clouds throwing lightning bolts. So now we know there is no God. And the Soviets were atheists, so they applauded him and thought that's great. But clearly that's not a proof one way or the other. So, yeah, how would we know if something has existed from eternity? And then when we talk about that, you tell me if we could be certain or not, all right? Well, it's not an empirical question, right? Like, you, you don't send, well, it, you don't send, like, a time capsule back in time as far as you can. It's, and then it's when pretty it hard to back, observe you know,
0: time immemorial.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, it eventually doesn't come back, so you know you went beyond creation. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it also strikes me, too, like, when you, when you just kind of um, abstract for a moment and just really think, like, why is... Why do all the things exist in the way they do at this given time and moment? Like, why are there just layers of supported reality, from gravity to to, from quarks to gravity to solar system? Like all of this. And uh, it's interesting. You can propose things. You can say that eventually all matter becomes like black holes, which gets very dense and then gets hot and explodes over and over again. But it really doesn't answer the question. Like, why does it it work that way? Yeah, it's a exactly.
1: cyclical worldview. I think that's what I would do. So here's how I'd approach it. Yeah. Uh, first identify the options and then eliminate those that involve contradictions. They're impossible. And what you're left with must be true. Okay. Sometimes I call that the Sherlockian. The Sherlockian. <laughs> His quote was eliminate the impossible and whatever you're oh, left with must be true.
0: You know what? I'm not going to be a Bozo. I'm going to be I'm going to be um Watson.
1: Yeah, precisely. Good. <laughs> and and people will say, uh Wow, how did you figure that out? And then once you tell them, they say, oh, that was easy. I, he always complain about that, right? Don't explain yourself. because Don't explain you do, yourself
0: because it, it removes the mistake. Okay, so so yeah. what
1: are the big options then? So think of- about that. So you said God created all else. So God is eternal with no beginning. Yeah. Everything else had a beginning. That's right. That's one of the three options. Another option is everything had a beginning. Nothing was created. Now, those two, all things are eternal and only some things, God – are the two main philosophies in the world. If you if you look at, there's theists, right? Then there's monists of various kinds. There's there's spiritual monists like Hinduism, but there's also material monists. Like And you mentioned one of those, the idea of some kind of oscillating cycle of material universes. But, so those are the two popular ones. But the third one is nothing's eternal. Right, Those I mean, those seem to be the three options, all, some, or none. And I don't know of any worldviews that, are built on nothing's eternal people will sometimes say well what about buddhism well buddhism says each individual thing had a beginning and end but it there's no beginning and end of that that process extends to eternity um, so what if someone just says this usually when i encounter this it's more like someone just wants to argue but i think it helps illustrate the point of how we would proceed nothing's eternal is impossible because it would require an uncaused event there was once only nothing and then there's something do you think anyone anyone would really accept?
0: Well, I think once you think about it, if if there's nothing, pure nothingness. Yeah. Not not space,
1: not quantum foam. Well, space, great... according to uh, according to physicists, space is something. So. I know that's what I like. Yeah, Lawrence Krauss, who used to be at ASU, and yeah. he wrote a book, "The Universe from Nothing," and he was on being interviewed by Stephen Colbert, and it was a great. You can look it up because it's a great little five minute interview, and. He says, yes, yeah, nothing means quantum foam. Yeah, well, it's, that's it's not stuff.
0: Something. That's something, yeah. I don't think nothing, how do I put this? Nothing doesn't, nothing doesn't seem to exist physically right now. <laughs>
1: Precisely, you can't, well, nothing, yeah, that's the whole idea of nothing is it can't exist. It can't have been, like the whole right. sentence, there once was nothing is a contradiction. Right. And so that's yeah. why I say, well, we can rule that out then. there are There yeah. is no such thing as nothing and then something.
0: Yeah, even just crossing a distance across what we call space is moving things that are invisible to our eyesight around us and folding them around. It's, it's such an interesting point of view when you kind of look in anyway, sorry, that's
1: a side yeah. note. Keep going. <laughs> no, it's important. Strict nothing versus a vacuum. For example, a vacuum is on not nothing. I don't think, a, yeah, a vacuum is something, but even then there's no pure vacuum
0: in, in the way that we think about it. Anyways, yeah. there, there's still an something there being. connecting the objects.
1: Right. Yeah. An absence of being nothing here as we're talking about yeah. non being. Oh, okay. So quantum foam is being of some kind. Uh, yep. space is, is space is like the relationship between beings. So we can rule that one out. We're left with two options then all things are eternal and only th- some things are eternal. I think when you look at the history of ideas, you'll see those two have been in conflict, right. uh, or so
0: they've
1: been in conflict. You said, yeah. yeah, those are the going views, right? So we have, so we have, uh, monists and dualists on the one side because c- dualists might trick you. A lot of people get really excited about Aristotle and he'll say, he's great because he proves the mater- the Greek materialists are wrong, but he still denies God, the creator. Mm. Right? So he has, he has this unmoved mover, which is eternally causing motion. There's no bringing anything into existence. So logically he's as far away from God, the creator as the materialists were. He's just trying to make up some problems that the Greek materialists faced, but he keeps underneath all is eternal. So, on that side, you have, you have monus you have dualists, and then over here you have God the Creator. So, we're, we're a step closer now. But think about that. Now, in your first question on certainty, do you think we could be certain that being doesn't come from non being?
0: The, the thing is, I, I can't see any way that being can come from non being.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, if we it's can't not... be certain of that, we can't be certain of anything.
0: Right. Well, see that's it it ends up becoming really hard. I mean everything is how should I put this? Everything's equivocal, I guess. <laughs> but it's it's a, a equivocation of reality because if everything we see doesn't actually make sense with the past in terms of origins, then how can we trust anything today? It's just chaos.
1: Yeah, so yeah, right. So it'd be that's a kind of like a livability test in that case. Like a livability. Well, no, I
0: well, this is a different I mean I'm, I'm thinking more of like a, a you know uh analogy of being that kind of idea like if if, if there's not finite analogies to what's eternal
1: yeah right, nothing like, yeah. can
0: make sense but yeah yeah again that's sort so of assuming I, I the conclusion so
1: that's right so someone who believes in god could maybe it maybe they're very well intentioned but they might say something like don't ask those questions we can't know anything about god uh and they might, they might think that somehow is helpful to christianity because right. let me remind everyone of why we would be talking about this in the this some might think well this is just some some Bored philosophers. If we didn't give them jobs, they'd be wandering the streets. we got to provide them with philosophy jobs.
0: Yeah, they need those.
1: Yeah, but uh, no, what happens to belief in Christ if there is no God? So that's why, that's why if a Christian philosopher would want to focus on that topic, right? Uh, presumably, you can't be the son of God if there is no God to be the son of or the word of God. But also think about the redemptive claims of Christ. Like, why do we need Christ?
0: Why do we need Christ?
1: Yeah. Someone says, hey, you should be a Christian. Why?
0: Well, that's a question. I mean, so I think the actual answer is to be, to be reconciled to God. Yeah, but I, like I think the, the plausibility of that answer, if God doesn't exist as you're getting at it, is, is sort of so implausible that you don't even want to listen.
1: It, it becomes more, then it's just a more, more like a multi-level marketing scheme. Just and interesting it's like, myth. Hey, mine's better than Herbalife. So you should join yeah. the Christian one, not the Herbalife one. Hmm. We have essential oils in, our, in mine. Hmm but there's nothing objective, real about it. Right. So or essential oils, but yeah, you should reconcile to God presumably because of sin, right? Sin, so what, corruption, so death. I, I'm, and I'm, I'm not asking this. I'm not just playing Socrates. I'm really asking for a conversation. What is sin? Like, like, let me give you an example. Uh, if you had kids and they, and they, they knock something over on accident, they're not being rough or they just knock it over. Well, you wouldn't say that's a sin no it's a mistake kids. yeah so sin means something more what is this thing exactly that we can't just chalk up to human error
0: well i think what you're get if i understand what you're getting at i think that's actually important to maybe say explicitly because pretty much all christian doctrine requires metaphysical reasoning even in some mm-hmm. of the ones that we favor like imputation or original sin or whatever else implies and define metaphysical
1: a, for everyone pardon me Define metaphysical for everyone. Because I, I was at a bookstore the other day and it had, it had a sign on the wall. Metaphysics. And underneath, it wasn't, it was, it was like astral projection. Oh, yeah. Uh, tarot card reading. <laughs> well,
0: metaphysics, I mean, simply, but is that which goes beyond our kind of senses? But where it gets very practical is this. like, If, if I say, I have sin in my body and Christ can impute his righteousness to me, I don't see that righteousness coming down like a, a sunbeam hitting my heart, yeah, right? Exactly. or that sin being expunged or that corruption from my inner human being, that invisible part of what I am. But it is change, and I can see the effects through my physical body. And therefore, yeah. when people are, say, growing in sanctification, you see effects of that metaphysical transformation. But all that to say, like the, what sin is in us, and what impute, all these kinds of topics— They require a view of reality that is, that takes account of some sort of metaphysical paradigm. So beyond just
1: experience, beyond just experience. Um, But so, so sin, think about the transformation of sin then here, here's why I would trace sin back to, Uh, because we often, I think when people name sins, they'll name something probably like stealing, hating, lying, Mm. uh, and they'll say those things are sins. But I, I would think those things sort of come out of another problem, which is the, the sin that has to be confessed. Because not everybody has stolen or, or lied. Right. The, the Pharisees were very proud of themselves for, for how they conducted themselves. Uh, and they, they still had sin to repent of. So I think we can trace it back to what Paul says in Romans 3, 10, 11. Sin is not seeking, not understanding, and not doing what is right. So the last one, not doing what is right, is what people focus on but it begins in not seeking God and you can see how that would be a violation of the first commandment, right? You should love God. And in reality you don't really spend any time seeking God. And if you did see God, you'd know God. So the, the sin of unbelief is the one that's there as the basis for these other ones. And that's the one that has to be confessed. You have to repent of and confess the sin of unbelief, whether you're doing really well like a Pharisee or you're not doing as well, like a publican, you have that same problem. Hmm. And that's how that connects back up to our discussion of the knowledge of God.
0: Well, and maybe, and you might disagree that I was, I'll put this out there, but I mean, I think you can abstract sin to even more that sin is essentially non it's in, entering into non-being. I mean, this is kind of, yeah. of an ethanation point of view. Yeah. I know not that you actually possible. become oblivion, but that you, that being itself is good that God grants us. And sin is not knowing, not willing, not choosing. Yeah. Right. It is acting
1: contrary to your nature,
0: acting contrary. It's corrupting. What is God created to be good? And by yeah. corruption, it's rusting, wrecking, ruining. And therefore, the effect of that is lying because you're no longer acting right. truthfully or you're being right. truthful. Yeah, um, that's right. and, and again, that's so, so all yeah, you metaphysical. You're
1: made to know God, but you don't know God. Now, you yeah. can't make that part of the proof. That's a circular proof because a Hindu could say you were made to know Krishna and you don't know right. Krishna. Um, so we're, at that point, we're already saying more than we've proven, but we're just illustrating the point, I think. Yeah. Okay. So let's but, go but back. Yeah. You, so, so our fellowship of gods a serious thing. So, someone might look at us and say, "Oh, they're they're just that's their hobby." No, this is a very serious issue. The reality of unbelief, even in what we might otherwise call believers, mm-hmm. and they still struggle with that unbelief. And they might they might say, uh, "Well, yeah, no one can know. You don't really need to know." Well, then why did Christ die for you? Christ died for sin, and sin begins in unbelief. Christ died for your unbelief, and, and you you can't just say it's not that big of a deal. No, yeah.
0: So uh, at, let's go back quickly back to those. We're, we're talking about proof of God. I, th- I think we still said um, eternal or not eternal are the two options. Well, we see,
1: well now all is eternal. Yeah, is all no is creation or some. And, and it's interesting. Uh, like Aristotle is very explicit about this. There is no creation ex nihilo.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: philosophical Hinduism is very explicit about that. Buddhism is explicit about that. So a lot of times when you talk to say Christians and they want to incorporate Plato or they want to incorporate Aristotle, it seems like when I asked them about this, they're not aware of the fact that those guys explicitly reject theism, which means this, you could use Aristotle's argument and you still end up rejecting God.
0: You're sort of in the Romans one area where you know that God exists and his invisible power and attributes, but not necessarily who God is. Is that kind of what you're Well, that's
1: why I, I want to, I want to say something that you, you can call crazy. Romans one I think teaches a full knowledge of God. And I would call what you just described a bare minimum. Like an aerosol doesn't even live up to that because a bare minimum Hmm. would require your speaking about God, the creator. And he denies God, the creator. Hmm. So he doesn't even get to the bare minimum. But I think that the works of God, creation and providence are what reveals God. That's how we know who God is. And that's in contrast to, this is where you might say I'm crazy, the Beatific Vision, which is Platonism. And it's Plato's view of the highest reality. I told you before about the about triangleness. You never in this life see triangles. You only see uh, imperfect forms of the triangle. When you are out of the body, you finally observe the pure triangleness in itself, and that's the highest good. And so a Christian might think, you know, let's make this sound more pious and just say. When you're out of the body, you observe God, and that's our highest good. That sounds great. Who could deny that? Well, here's a problem is you're sidestepping and minimizing all the works of God, of creation and providence, redemptive history, and, and, and like Plato, you're, you're thinking this world doesn't matter. What matters is getting out of this world, and that's not at all what we're taught in the biblical worldview. We're taught that this world is made very good. We're reminded over and over in Psalms and, uh, about the world as a creation of God and what it reflects of who God is. So we only ever know God through his works. That's where Aristotle came short. That's where Plato came short. That's why they need Christ also, because they rejected that. So uh, I think I'm tracking through going. Let's
0: get to the conclusion then, or the conclusion. Let's get to the, maybe the, uh, <laughs> I are not think we have time. I think it takes a thousand hours to get to the conclusion. But so, so how would you then say, what is the right way to understand reality, the existence of God? I don't even know.
1: So, so, Cliff version, Cliff Notes version. We could know only God's eternal. Okay. And I started to step you through a proof of that, and we could do that in a a more context when we have more time. Yeah. Uh, But we can know only God has existed from eternity, and putting something else in that place is the very definition of idolatry. Hmm. And and so the world systems, a system that says the material world is eternal, well, that's putting something in the place of God. And you can know this before you come to scripture. In fact, you need scripture because you didn't know this.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. You need to be redeemed because you've been part of some group that put something else in the place of God and called it eternal. So that's where it's getting to. Is it's establishing our very need for who Christ is. Hmm.
0: So, we, so if, I, if, I, if I track you then, it's important to know that the material things do exist because we yeah. know who God is through his works. Right. And as you noted, Scripture is kind of replete with these sort of things, like remember God for his great works, yeah. just the fact of, of creation and
2: yeah, the way right. in
0: which he composed us of body-soul, that is to say, materiality. Exactly, yeah. Uh, points to the fact that uh, there, there's something unique and special and good about this. Nobody can be God by nature or creatures by nature, and so therefore we need to know God in a creaturely way.
1: Exactly. Well, that's the very first temptation, right? You can be God. Oh, you can yeah. know good and evil the way God does. Right. So the first temptation was exactly this. It was a philosophy test. I, I don't know if people realize that, but the very first test in human history was a true false philosophy exam. <laughs> you can be God and know things the way God does. And the correct answer is false.
0: <laughs> so uh, this, this may feel like it's a of left field, but it's a question that was kind of popping into my head. Do you have a, a particular view on the analogia entis? The analogy of being in terms of how we know God and how we participate in him?
1: Yeah, well... All right. So yeah, You don't have a
0: view, you don't have to have one,
1: by the way. Well, let's say um, it comes up in it, for me, the, the way that comes up for me is about whether or not reason applies to God, and is reason created? So is reason a tool God made us with that approximates for our purposes God, or is reason something that is eternal, it's uncreated, and it is uh that by which God reveals himself. So that's how it comes up for me. Um I think any attempt to uh, so so uh, about reason, I, I don't think you can make the case that reason is created. Reason would have to be part of the nature of God. I think you could show that in scripture and you could show it from general revelation. The idea that the law of non contradiction was at one point created, apparently then before that it didn't hold, would mean that God was both God and not God before then. Hmm. Um, but even, but then still, let me ask you this. This gets back to our empiricism discussion. Someone will say, well, then you're saying we can know, we can know God in his being. And there I'll say, no, I don't know about that. I don't know if we can know anything in itself apart from how it reveals itself. So I think that's a prior question before you get into analogy or univocally, or equivocally distinguishing that, how, how do you know the computer in front of you? Well, you know it by how it reveals itself, right? Its properties. Well, how do you know God? You know God by how God reveals Himself, and He does mm-hmm. that in creation and providence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You'll never see God directly. Build a peel back reality and look at God and see what it's right. really like back there. But you wouldn't build it with your computer either. Like so, so peel I, back my right speed, to see the God. What guts. is it really like?
0: What's interesting? Um, I was talking with um, well, I talked with two John Owen scholars yesterday. I guess one. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but interesting point. One of them said that John Owen actually modifies the beatific vision right. by saying you don't see the nature of God as such because mm-hmm. it's invisible, but you see the nature of God in the face of Christ. That's the beatific yeah. vision. Yeah, and that seems to so agree. So Christ with, always like, has a
1: human nature. Now.
0: Yeah. But it seems to agree with what you're getting at. Even in that beatific vision that we enter into, we're still seeing God through His creature, creaturely ways in mean, Christ. Yeah. Uh, his His human nature is created; He's uncreated right. and created.
1: Right. So, so even then, you're not seeing the eternal right. Word of God,
0: and we see you're the glorious
1: or deified Christ the incarnation.
0: And but even then, in. I
1: think with John Owen, he might be mistake. He might be misunderstood by thinking of the face as if it's an experience, like I'm seeing your face mm, right now on mm-hmm. film. I don't think he would mean that. He would mean the person and works of Christ.
0: I could, I, I don't, I just heard
1: that secondhand. So I don't sure. know the exact uh, context. But think about I, that. Let, let me, let me give this example. The Pharisees saw the face of Christ and did nothing for them. In fact, well, it made them worse. Right. right. They became, so seeing something doesn't help. It's understanding it. That's understanding and there's a number of times where Christ right. says to the disciples, Oh, you of little faith, don't you understand? Right. So what we're meant to have is not an experience. We're meant to have an understanding. We could have an yeah. experience and not get it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Now, this is uh, my own kind of understanding. is, is essentially at the res. Well, at the, when he ascends the cross, that's when God's glory is revealed. And that is most shown in his ascension, obviously. So he becomes a sort of glorified person. The older language is deified, but glorified is the, the Bible word. And so his uh, union between humanity and divinity has some sort of uh, relationship that's more visible, whatever that means. And in our resurrection, we get our you know, so-called spiritual body, which by spiritual, I don't mean unsubstantial. Yeah. I mean substantial. Yep. Um, we'll actually be able to see Christ face-to-face in our cre- uh, created humanity, mm-hmm. but our spiritual humanity. And that's the way that the beatific vision is mediated to us. Meaning, yeah, I don't know if it means literally like I just walk up to someone in a space plane, but there is some sort of creaturely communication of yeah. I mean, if I want to say the divine energies or something like that.
1: Well, how about what happens to all of God's previous works in creation and history?
0: Yeah. Do they all just get obliviated or is there some continuity in terms of the new? Yeah, I I would argue
1: there has to be continuity and that God doesn't do things wastefully. So all the works of God are still the way we know God. We don't get to a point where we can just set aside the works of creation and providence. We still want to, that's why so many times the Psalms remind, they'll either remind you of creation or remind you of something specific about God's redemptive work. Remember when Mm. you came out of Egypt. Remember when Moses gave the law. So you're remembering the things that God did in redemption. So I would think that's true of Christ as well. You'd be thinking about how Christ subdued his enemies. Mm. How that happened. I'm
0: I'm enjoying this conversation. I want to be sensitive to our time. So I want to hit on two things. One really briefly, then I want to get to your books. Um, So I I find this interesting. I I, I like what you're saying. I think I'm following. It's interesting. You're not fitting into my, into my categories though. So far, (laughs) I I can't quite pin you into the area that I think that you ought to be pinned into. That might
1: be a really good thing. Actually. Do you mean like a Vantillion or,
0: well, I don't know yet where you are in the kind of apologetic spectrum, where you are in terms of, uh, how you view metaphysics, where you are in terms of the kind of, yeah. if, you're a new, if you're Plotinus, Plato, Aristotle, yeah. who actually gets it right. I don't mind that, by the way. I'm not saying as a critic, it's just interesting to sure. me because usually yeah. I feel like, oh, I kind of see where you're, getting at you're a Thomist yeah. or you're a, or whatever. Yeah. But it strikes me that you are saying helpful things, creation, you're affirming metaphysics, which I, I think if you're a Christian, you have to. I just, yeah. You don't have to be detailed in it, but you have to affirm that sin is, is, a, is something, that yeah. righteousness that's imputed to you is something. Uh, well, actually, I would say that sin is, is, uh, is nothing. But anyways, that's right, a different yeah, point. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, that's, we shouldn't get into that now. The one thing I wanted to touch on at the end, you can categorize if you'd like, but you don't actually need to. I think that's sometimes very yeah. interesting because your ideas carry you instead of what people maybe pigeonhole you right. into. But the one thing I do want to just briefly touch on is if, if God created these things and we can see in the effects that the cause somehow exists or whatever, it stands to reason then that things have purpose and existence and goodness built into them. So there's something yeah. in nature that is uh, we can call it good. We can mm-hmm. call yeah, it right. The nature. the nature. We can maybe the discern, discern yeah discern order the the nature of things, which mm-hmm. is a a famous topic in philosophy. Uh, so what I'm trying to get at is uh, can is natural law something that we can know, and by we I mean the human race, not just Christians. Right. And if so, is this a common ground by which we can make uh, in, uh, decisions in a political society.
1: I'm so glad you asked about common ground. And I think the law does connect up to common ground. I, I would bring in another term, which is general relation. Mm-hmm. So I think common ground would begin mm-hmm. with our ability to use reason that we can, as humans, we can use reason. If we don't have that, we don't have any ability to work together in any area of common ground. And it would involve the need for integrity. What if, what if you knew you were going to have a discussion with someone and they told you ahead of time, I don't care if I'm consistent.
0: Well, it'd be a, a boring conversation.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I don't consistent, like, talk. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, metaphysically consistent, not like, well, so one day I like Star Wars, one day I like Star Trek. That's all I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, Metaphysically inconsistent. Well, that's what a hypocrite is. I don't want to have a conversation with hypocrites. So you'd have, to, you'd have to come into this knowing that we're using reason, we're agreeing, we want to have integrity. And then... When we're talking about natural law, we're talking about what is, what is our highest good? And th- so let me answer your question, and this will help you categorize me also, because I've always been fascinated with the beginning of the Westminster Confession and the Shorter Catechism. Hmm. I think the Shorter Catechism says our chief end, which is in philosophy, we call that the good. And I think that is common ground for everybody. All humans are acting as if there is some good they're pursuing. The difference is they may be wrong about the good they're pursuing. This really isn't the highest good. But as Christians, are we able to show that the knowledge of God through the works of God is our highest good? And, and the, oh, the confession opens that way, too, because it says that God, the knowledge of God is available to everybody. Right. The light of nature, mm-hmm. the works of creation and providence do so far reveal God that unbelief is without excuse. Mm hmm. So that, that's what we've been talking about today, right? The, uh, the, our knowledge of God and the inexcusability of unbelief. Those are the things that have always fascinated me. And those aren't just for people who have the Bible. Those are for everybody. That's true for everyone. So you'll see in Acts, you'll see Paul and uh, uh, Paul bring that up in Athens, right? Right. He gets back to general revelation. He doesn't quote Acts, Bible Acts verses at them. Say, well, you should have read Deuteronomy. Then you would have got it. Uh, so I think when we get to natural law, that's what we're talking about is, is that can we, can we name what the common good is for all humans? And I don't see people able to do that. Honestly, I'm not, I mean, it's kind of disappointing sometimes, but it's not even on the radar.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think if you have time and opportunity for leisure to think about it, I think people tend to have similar common goods, you know, peace. But what about, society. what about
1: just for their own life? Like not, You'd think they'd be motivated even if they don't have a lot of leisure. Just think about, for myself, what do I think is the most valuable thing? Yeah. Say, well, my happiness. That's the most important thing to me. right? All that, yeah, that's called hedonism. That's one of the views. It turns out to be false. So you can you can, you can can look through. You, you'll, it'll turn out, the more you study, the more you'll find out, well, there really aren't that many views. There's only a few views. And we should be able to argue for the correct one.
2: Mm. It's
1: well, interesting did- because- Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, they all said the same thing I would, formally speaking, the knowledge of God is the highest good. None of them are affirming God, the creator, though. So that's where this ambiguity we've been seeing today comes in. You need to be arguing for God, the creator, not just the highest being on a chain of beings. Mm. Yeah, being among beings.
0: Um, So there is this commonly accessible uh, a common re- general revelation. Yeah. But it is the case that most, if not all, do not seek it out or discern what is true about this. And therefore there needs to be a much more clearer revelation, I would assume. And that's where you would go to special revelation.
1: I'm glad you asked that too, because the first part I agree with no one's seeking.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that's the beginning. We have to repent of that, not just name it, but say that's true about me. I have to repent of that. But then the reason why I repent of that, I used the example earlier of a child doing childish things, and we don't say you need to repent to them. We say you got to grow up uh, at most, but not repent. Uh, you repent of something wrong, which means general revelation does provide us with a clear standard mm. that we violated. I don't think scripture is more clear about general revelation. It's more clear about redemption, which is a whole different topic. Right? Mm. So we need scripture because we need to be told how we'll be redeemed general revelation doesn't tell us that and that's what the, that's what the first part of the confession says the knowledge of redemption is only from scripture yeah so, it's, i
0: mean it reminds me of but, romans 2 where the law of god is yeah. written in the hearts of gentiles i think what you just said is actually quite helpful because everywhere in all societies i think most people get what's wrong like murder is basically wrong everywhere mm-hmm. theft, all this kind of stuff but so the, the negative the things that you ought not to do seems to be something that everyone at least has, has access to
1: but the positive However, they do define murder differently though. So in Fair. one sense, yes. And in another sense, no. So they'll say, we well, yeah, killing your neighbor after he looked at you wrong. That's not murder. That's just what we all do, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas we'd say, no, 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 that counts as murder. So you still have to define the terms.
0: Yeah, there, there's, some, there, yeah there's some shades to do it. But but the positive side, I think you're right, is that the redemptive side is, is not really known unless revealed.
1: Yeah, well, and that's not known, but also the sin of unbelief is not known. You're not going to find... In some other cult, any any human culture that's mm-hmm. not touched by special relations, people saying, "Yeah, you know, not knowing God's really a big sin because they don't know God, right? So they're not because they really, don't know God
0: to know yeah. that that's not a big okay." Yeah. So um, this is interesting. We talked about uh, uh, well, we talked about certainty. We talked about probability. We talked about the whole history of Western recent Western thought in like a few minutes, which is uh, interesting in itself <laughs> to yeah, even it's, try to yeah, do yeah, that. We a lot of topics. Uh, the well, I think it's of God. All under the
1: umbrella of our knowledge of God, though. Uh, under our umbrella
0: of, uh, uh, yeah, of the knowledge of God. And uh, then we sort of landed here on uh, that we can actually see what's true in nature. So as we conclude here, can you, I think people might be listening and being like, okay, I need to know more, if maybe they are. T- tell me about your books that people should read and any other books that come to mind that maybe are not yours.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, I, ha- I think underneath the general topic of unbelief, a knowledge of God and unbelief. I have this one called the clarity of God's existence. Okay. That goes over the history of the enlightenment that you and I talked about and challenges to belief in God. And it looks at various failed attempts by people who are maybe well-meaning, but they they want people to believe in God, but they don't respond to these challenges. So I think that one would be interesting for people if they want to follow up on how can we show God exists. And Mm. then for some of the theologians, and this might help you in terms of categorizing me also, um, I have two books on early Princeton with Palgrave, Reason and Faith at Early Princeton,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Reason and Faith in the Theology of Charles Hodge. Mm. And I, I mentioned Palgrave because I know right now they have a, a, a holiday sale oh, wow. uh, on their hardbacks, which is sometimes academic books are too expensive. But I'm looking at Early Princeton, Charles Hodge, and then I have another book on Benjamin Warfield. And I'm especially interested in the idea of reason that developed at Early Princeton and how that influenced American thought and, and what happened to it because it's not taught there anymore. Hmm. It's interesting. So these are the books that you've written
0: that are. Uh, you have a number of other books too. These are the ones that maybe are most relevant to those topics. I'll see what we talking about. At the very
1: end, we got to the idea of the good. And I have yeah. a book from Cambridge University Press on the natural moral law.
0: Okay, that, that one's actually relatively affordable. Music. I was
1: looking, looking it up. Yeah, and on, on the cover is a picture of Aeneas, carrying his father, Anchises, out of the flames of Troy. Mm. And you see Anchises reaching behind him to grab one of his household idols. Mm. And it's kind of the theme of the book because, look, your city's burning down. You lost. If your gods were any good, you wouldn't be in the situation you're in. Why are you reaching back? You should reach back to grab the household idol to chuck it in the fire, right? Mm. Instead, it's taken. Those gods are made the foundation of Rome. Mm. And he is the founder of Rome. So I'm looking at that about the idea of idolatry in contrast to the good. Hmm. And then I have one, another one from Cambridge on the Declaration of Independence in God. Because in that one, I look at how our idea of God affects law.
2: Hmm. I look
1: at some notable Supreme Court cases over the last 200 years and how the way you you define God shapes the way you understand these cases. Interesting. Well, that's it's a fast,
0: I mean, I know these are relatively similar topics, but it's interesting that you kind of move into the political philosophy realm
1: as well. So yeah, I go from uh, yeah history of thought to, to theology yeah. to uh, philosophy, law and natural law. But it's all related to our knowledge of God. Can yeah. we know God? That's, that's what I'm convicted of. It's, it's not only can we know God; it's clear that God exists, and our greatest good is knowing God.
0: You know, I think that sound body is a perfect way to end this podcast on knowing God. So thank you Owen, so much for the conversation. It was fun. Uh, It was interesting to try to to trace your way of thinking to figure out who you were. I think I'm getting closer, but I'm sure I'll find out more if I can jump into one of your books. So thanks for the talk. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's do it again sometime.
0: Sure.